Ladies and gentlemen, the ringing of that phone bell means mystery, adventure. Brought to you by Apples of Gold. Apples of Gold is directed by Danny Webb and produced by Rodney Pell. This is Rodney Pell speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Quiet, please. I suppose we had it coming to us because, in fact, we weren't as innocent as we meant to be. We were fed up with the way in which everything that came over this new magic box, the radio, was being swallowed. Anything that came through that new machine was believed. Hey, welcome to this very special episode of the Radio Theater Podcast. I'm Kevin Farkas, host and executive producer. On the podcast, we work with community-based actors and local theater organizations to present classic, contemporary, and original imaginative audio productions. And sometimes these are our own shows, and sometimes we just like to promote the work of others doing radio theater. And in addition to showcasing performances, the podcast is also dedicated to celebrating that technical craft of radio theater. And a warning, that's where we sometimes get into the nerd talk about technical things like microphones and things like that. So this is our 21st episode, and we're excited to meet Rodney Bell of Huntington, West Virginia, who is the producer of Apples of Gold. Now, Rod, do you call yourselves a theater company or theatrical studio? How do you describe Apples of Gold? Well, that's a really great question to start off with. Um, I would pretty much describe us. Uh, it's more of uh, my father-in-law's uh, mission that has taken on an artistic quality about it. As it currently stands, I think it would be fair to just call us a radio theater company. Um, but it has been much more than that in the past. But that's kind of where we are right now today. Your studio is... Um is it in your house? Is that right? Uh, it's actually in my father-in-law's house. Uh, they remodeled their house, uh, and they live in the upstairs part. Uh, the downstairs is a one-bedroom, fully furnished apartment that my wife and I stay in when we go to the city they live in. And uh, we have converted the majority of that apartment uh, into a fully functional sound studio, complete with acoustic panels and, and such, uh, to kind of make sure that it actually kind of has the look and feel of a studio. Well, you can't get any more comfortable than that, I tell you, <laughs> working in a nice finished place. <laughs> and he's actually the originator of this project, right? Yes, he and his brother. Uh, his brother first started uh, the Apples of Gold kind of uh, philosophy uh, a little over 50 years ago at this point. Um, and uh, his, his name was Bill, Bill Webb. And uh, Bill did a Sunday morning devotional program uh, in local Charleston, West Virginia radio station, AM radio stations. And it was called Apples of Gold based off of uh, the Bible verse, Proverbs 2511. Uh, and um, it just kind of grew from there, from a radio program, devotional program, if you will, into a actual live theater production of uh, basically Christmas-themed plays uh, that were run with full actors, full costumes, full makeup, you know, the scenes and everything else. And then Bill passed away in 2013, and uh, Danny, my father-in-law, Danny Webb, he was trying to figure out an outlet for continuing the work uh, because it's so near and dear to his heart. He actually has a theater background, and uh, we started working with a local recording studio in Charleston, West Virginia, and uh, the gentleman that was running that studio also passed away. So it kind of left us with a void, and um, 
given that I have a little bit of technical background, I told my father-in-law, Danny, I said, if you want to do this, we can do it. Um, And there's a simple way to do it. And there's a complicated way to do it. But if you're willing to invest some money um, and purchase the equipment, I would be more than happy to step in as producer. I'm not really sure that was the smartest move I ever made, but <laughs> here I am. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so uh, and that's that's where we are. So um, I'm starting what uh, we've already started recording. So I'm on my third full season of working with my father-in-law directly on this, uh, what is now a radio studio radio program. Wow. So you... You had some experience in recording or media, is that right? Yeah, I uh, I, I grew up uh, in music. Um, my family was very uh, church music oriented, um, which isn't uncommon uh, in West Virginia to see a lot of, uh, we have a ridiculous amount of talented musicians in this state, uh, and most of them have a church beginning, if not all of them. And uh, so I toyed around with uh, some different music growing up uh, throughout my teenage years. I was in a couple rock bands and actually did some work uh, in a recording studio um, locally, uh, did a little bit of work in, in Nashville for a minute, and then um, did some studio work as a percussionist here and there. And uh, basically just did a little audiovisual, uh, setting up some live stage shows and everything else. And uh, I would I wouldn't call myself an engineer, uh, but I'm engineer adjacent. Uh, so um, I know a little bit more than I need to know to make me dangerous. And so it's just been a natural progression. Uh, I just turned 50 in September. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of a all of the skills that I developed from the time I was five until I was 50 have uh, kind of accumulated in, in this producer role for Apples of Gold. So you produce and your father-in-law directs. Do you all sort of collaborate on choosing the shows and coming up with the scripts and uh, things like that? To an extent. Danny, pretty much as the director, um, he will uh, he works tirelessly, quite frankly. This is uh, he's obviously retired. And so this is his full time job. uh, And he takes it very seriously. Uh, You know, it's the old saying, it's not a job if you like what you do type thing. And so uh, his his passion is directed toward this, and he will spend countless hours um, watching old old movies, listening to old radio programs, and he will look for scripts that kind of fit uh, the mold of the actors that he knows he has available. You know, we have a couple children, we have a couple of middle age, we have some women, we have some men, we have some older people, and. Everybody in the cast, uh, even though the cast isn't always the same people, but we do have a few core people, and they all have a just ridiculously wide background, some of which have never done anything like this, uh, some of which are current radio uh, personalities, uh, some of which are local TV uh, news personalities. It's truly an amateur production, but it doesn't necessarily have only amateurs in it. Um, so Danny will look at scripts. Uh, he'll look for ones that kind of run maybe 30 to 40 minutes, and then he'll try to find usually one or two a year that are actually like an hour-long show. And then he and I will then work to kind of condense the scripts to make sure they fit into radio parameters. And then we start recording them. Like I said, we just recorded last weekend uh, four shows. And uh, so we will record throughout the year, and then we just put them all together and start playing them out in November or late November. And why do you follow that schedule rather than, uh, you know, recording a show, releasing it, recording a show, releasing it like a lot of theaters will do? 
you know, throughout the year. It's not something Danny and I haven't discussed. Um, Danny is, uh, his background is stage. Uh, and so he uh, sort of locks in on uh, the concept of you pick one show and you perfect that one show and you run it 27 times when you're, you know, when you're in season. And so it's, you know, it's kind of difficult for him to step out of that mold and see that, you know, we could have already been, we could have already released several shows this year. Um, he does enjoy the Christmas uh, portion of it uh, also, however. And so I think that it kind of directs him more towards a seasonal uh, type of atmosphere so that, you know, he calls it his Christmas, even though <laughs> for him it lasts the whole year. And I think that's part of the joy for him, as it is for most of us. Um, but in addition to that, we are overwhelmingly reliant on the schedules of everyone else. And he tries to be very cognizant of the fact that when they come in on a Saturday for, you know, six or eight hours, uh, you know, he knows that he's not going to be able to get people to do that every week. So we don't necessarily I wouldn't consider it a troop, uh, you know, uh, people who are kind of dedicated to the craft. So I, I think it's just a combination of, of multiple elements. But I think the primary two drivers are one, uh, he's still kind of learning his way around the podcast universe. Uh, and two, uh, for right now, he really it's it's kind of always been a Christmas thing for him, even in, you know, when we we're doing live shows um, or on stage shows, rather. Um, so it's more of a, a, you know, more of a Christmas oriented uh, thing for him. Now, you mentioned a little bit ago, radio parameters. What do you mean by radio parameters? Well, with radio, you have, you know, you have a lead in uh, that usually is a uh, top of the hour, you know, you're listening to yada, yada AM radio station out of Pittsburgh. Uh, and then we feed in uh, a hard cut uh, at, at usually right at the 60 minute mark. And so typically what he likes to do is he, try, he either runs two 30 minute shows or two close to 30 minute shows. But he always always wants to leave at least two minutes for him to add. It's not necessarily a devotional, but it is very Christian oriented message uh, to talk about, you know, what does Christmas mean to him and uh, to kind of express his Christian witness through that devotion. And so uh, we set it up very, very tight uh, so that we make sure we we cue in when the radio stations need us to. Uh, we cue out whether or not we're ready <laughs> because they're going to they're going to hard out. And so um, we just want to make sure that whenever we're putting things together, you know, for example, we don't want a program that's 22 minutes long and another a program that's 30 minutes long because that leaves eight minutes. And, uh, you know, when, when we purchase the airtime for these radio stations, you know, they, they give you 60 true minutes and there's nothing worse than, you know, any dead air, uh, especially on radio. And so um, we try to fill it. And that's part of the, the challenge of uh, adjusting scripts. Most scripts we have to cut back. Uh, we never add anything to the scripts, obviously, but most we have to kind of cut down because some will be a 40 minute script. Uh, you know, if you have, you can't have two 40 minute scripts. So it's really the radio parameters are almost completely uh, surrounding a 60 minute time frame, which is, like I said, it's a hard in and a hard out. And so, you know, they don't want any dead air and we don't want to lose uh, any potential listeners by having dead air. So we just try to fill it up as much as we can. 
This is really interesting to me. There's a lot of radio theater work that's going on in the world today. Often it is on stage, live productions. There's that. There's the podcasting. But you you are really sort of working with how they used to do it on radio, where you have to time everything just right. You have to fill that space so you don't have the dreaded dead air. (laughs) I think it's not very common, actually. It's actually, to me, a very interesting combination between modern-day tech and old-school radio shows. Um, As you mentioned, most troops that call themselves a radio theater troupe, and I I don't want to be too generalized with that, but the majority of them will do what you just said. Uh, You know, this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Municipal Auditorium, such-and-such radio troupe is going to be putting on a live stage production of, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, And then you go there and you sit there and you are there until they're done. And that could be 60 minutes or it could be 72 minutes or it could be however long it is. And so we don't think about that normally as we go to any type of uh, theater production, whether it's opera or, you know, a a symphony or whatever. We go there knowing we're just going to be there till it's over. And when you're dealing with actual radio time, you know, radio airtime is literally you know, every 30 seconds, every minute, every 90 seconds. It's very, very hard. And, you know, the the people on that end are trying to juggle that clock uh, 24 hours a day, whether it's the biggest radio station in the world or, you know, some small little, you know, radio station that just popped up somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Texas. So, but they still have to follow those timelines. And in our case, uh, we are not sponsored. We don't make any money. We are completely funded within ourselves. And, um, you know, it's basically us buying that airtime from the radio station um, with the understanding that, you know, they they have the option to, you know, ask us, what are you doing? <laughs> right. So we're not, you know, putting out some um, type of agenda, if, if you will. But, uh, you know, they get a copy of the script. Uh, I send them the recordings of the shows uh, so that they can cue them up right there in the station, the ones that we don't do live, that is. So, like I said, it's this really, to me, it's a very interesting combination between the technology that's available today to do, you know, just a little bit of whatever, but still kind of holding on to that uh, legacy. Let's talk about the other radio parameters, if you will, and that is the dramatic side to all this. And and, and, uh, let me just sort of explain what I mean by this through some of my experiences. You know, I work with a lot of people who are stage actors. And so when you ask stage actors who develop a sense of how they interact with other performers on the stage and so forth, when you ask them to, to stand before microphones and act... Uh, often they are turning to the other actors. They're they're looking for cues, which is all natural for stage actors. But sometimes that takes away from the presence on the mic. And that's a whole dynamic unto itself. And then there's this other dynamic of your voice is everything, right? You have to convey every nuance of emotionality and theatrics through the voice. And that is, sometimes I find that that's difficult for actors to do. But in the golden age of radio, I mean, those actors had it down perfectly. They were masters at that. Now, what is your experience with sort of coaching and directing and guiding actors to play to the microphone itself? you're, You're bringing up a very good point and probably what we spend the most time doing. You know, the people that we uh, employ, if you will, to do this, um, if it's their first time, I generally will work with them offline for a little bit and kind of get them to loosen up. 
Um, you know, I'll have them like, you know, hey, I need you just to f- let me hear you fake a sneeze, you know, and they'll go like at you. And I'm like, no, I mean like this, Achoo! you know, just to kind of like <laughs> yeah. really blow it out of the water. And, you know, they see that and they kind of jerk. And I, and, I, and I tell them, I'm like, everybody in here is going to be acting in such a way that they would never act in a boardroom meeting because you're a character. And if that character is serious, then you have to be serious. But if they're romantic, then they need to be romantic. And if they're silly, then they need to be silly. You know, and, and we just try to make sure that they understand they can drop that veil. Right. They don't they don't have to pretend that they are the banker or the pharmacist or the school teacher, you know, for for the hour that they're in there, they're Judy Garland or or whoever, you know, whoever you want to channel. And what we typically see is we'll do a run through, you know, and they'll be kind of like dry and stagnant. And then we'll the second time through after they see somebody else kind of like acting like an idiot, they understand that, oh, I can act like an idiot. And so and so it really kind of like, you know, I've worked with actual trained actors, and usually uh, you have to kind of rein them in, right? Because they're so much better and so much more experienced than anybody else that it's maybe inadvertent that they're upstaging the whole pro- program and it's losing its uh, characteristic. So you have to really kind of let people know, hey, it's okay to let go. If you've got a burp, just burp. I'll cut it out, right? Or if it cues you to burp, then burp. So it really becomes quite fun because we introduce everybody in the room as what they do full time. And then when we go into the script, they become these other people, other characters. And uh, when you're watching that kind of transpire uh, with someone who hasn't ever done that before, all of a sudden you kind of see them get in touch with a piece of themselves that they either forgot about or they never knew or were too scared to know that they could just kind of like be something else, even for just a moment, kind of a vacation from themselves, if you will. You know, so much of that is realized through this thing. I, you know, I call it, I'm not the first to call it, but I, I call it the, you know, the, the theater of the mind, right? This imaginary world that is created. For me, that's where the real magic is. It's in what what is created in the minds of the listeners. Is, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, and that's the end goal, right? Because our world is so visual. In my generation, we all see people that are just walking and staring at their phone or they're sitting behind a computer and just staring at it or they're watching, they're binge watching 17 seasons of their favorite show. And it's decreasing what I consider their ability to imagine. And with these programs, because all you can do is hear it, we have to then create the imagery and it doesn't have to be the same for any two people. You may hear a person, you know, voicing a certain part, and you're going to either picture them as something that you know, or you're going to try to create what you think they look like. And that character develops, like you said, in your mind, and you keep that look and feel throughout the duration of that show. Now, the second show may have the exact same actor, the exact same voice. So we have to then recreate that imagery, right? So that you're not 
keeping the same look and feel of that person in your mind. And we try very, very diligently, um, you know, because some of us have to change voices throughout a script because, you know, we've got three or four different roles that we have to play. And we draw on different accents and different inflections and, like you said, different emotions. And all of that combined with the sound effects and making sure that the music is uh, spot on with the period piece, particularly period pieces, all of that is now creating what our grandparents or our great-grandparents anymore nowadays, that's what they did every single time they gathered around the radio. And to know that that's taking place, even though you're not with a person while they're listening to your program, to just know that it's taking place, it means that you did something right. And that for me, especially as a producer, because I'm responsible for that element, right? Um, I'm responsible for making sure that that element translates and to know that that's happening. Mm -hmm. You mentioned sound effects uh, just a moment ago. How heavy... Do you rely on sound effects to help create this imaginary world? I mean, I, there are some shows, very, very few, right? Thin on the sound effects and thin on the scoring. And then there are others, in my opinion, are way over the top, right? <laughs> every, every little nuance, you know, and it, there's a sound effect for it. It's just, you know, that, that could be distracting. Where are you on that spectrum? I think the sound effects and the music, I, I think that they kind of create, well, for example, the music can create a transition between scenes. And if you didn't have that, then the listener's mind would become very confused. Like, you know, a minute ago they were talking about they're in the kitchen and now they're at a department store. I don't understand, you know, is there a department store in their kitchen? So you have to kind of create this, you know, momentary pause uh, that symbolizes the difference in scenery. It's exactly what we do on television and movies. There's never a scene transition that doesn't incorporate music. After you listen to this podcast, from now on, you'll pay attention to that <laughs> because you'll be like, oh, that's what that guy was talking about. Um, the music can also set the emotion. So you can't play you know, a rock and roll song during an intimate love scene. It just doesn't create the atmosphere. And that's what professional composers who work in, you know, movie and television, you know, they will literally watch a scene as it's been filmed, obviously at that point with no, no music at all. And in their mind, they're saying, well, this is this type of moment. I need to create a music piece that kind of orchestrates and shows this moment. And does that moment stay this moment or does it translate? Uh, if it's scary, you want scary music. And then on top of that, because the biggest challenge for me in these radio programs is the majority of them are set between 19, say 1935 and 1955. So immediately your mind kind of goes to a certain place in music. Now with sound effects, it just depends on the scene. If two people are arguing and one of them gets shot, well, the gunshot has to be louder than they're speaking. Um, but if two of them are just walking down a sidewalk, then if you want to hear some footsteps kind of lightly tapping the sidewalk, then it, it can't overpower the, the voice. So what I constantly do is I will either record us like I use footsteps as an example, footsteps, door knocks and door opens. I think that's the, <laughs> the most popular uh, sound effect in the world. But um, 
you know, if, if two people are just walking along and they're just kind of having a conversation, I have a completely different sounding sound effect than if somebody is opening a door and walking into a room, especially if it's supposed to be like a dramatic, like slow walk, like it's a ghost uh, that's kind of like, you know, stomping on a wooden floor. So when I'm analyzing the script, I take copious amounts of time to make sure that, I, I mean, you know, I will listen to 37 different footsteps uh, samples until I find the one that I believe fits the exact moment that it needs. And it may only be two seconds of one script that's an hour long, <laughs> but it will take me up to an hour to find that two seconds. And, and it's that piece of the work that makes the sound effects balance out what's going on in the scene and then helps the music enhance what's going on in the scene and then even perhaps transition into the next. So sound effects and music scoring, really, it's it's an extra character in the drama. Would you agree? I, I look at it as my my character, um, even if I have a line or two. You know, usually if I have a line or two, it's because my father-in-law didn't get enough actors. And he's like, hey, Rodney, read this taxi driver's line that says, hey, you need a taxi? You know, okay, sure. So I look at it as my, my actual, my character. And it's the part that my character plays in the play that is, I don't want to say it's more important, but it's as important as the spoken word that's happening uh, because, you know, my quote unquote character is part of that scene and it's helping to create the effect that that scene is supposed to have. Mm -hmm. What are you working on now and how are you recording your shows? Want to talk about that a little bit? Right now we're working on, well, I'm, I've been working on today, actually, uh, doing some post work on the recordings we did uh, last weekend. But uh, we have four that are already recorded, uh, and I'm getting ready to produce those for use. Uh, and then we have one that we just did a run through of so that we could, uh, that's going to be our live show. And that's uh, the old uh, I'll Be Seeing You you know, it's a 1940s kind of soldier meets a girl <laughs> type of story. And uh, the the interesting part of I'll Be Seeing You is probably most people don't know or don't remember, but I'll Be Seeing You actually dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder, <laughs> um, which obviously is a huge topic uh, in our, our world today. You know, I'm cognizant of the fact of, of what that what that means to a lot of people. So, Four of them are what I would call in the can, and then the other one is just a run-through that I recorded. And the purpose of doing that was so that I could kind of flesh out my sound effects and music transitions. So the the equipment that I use, um, and I don't mind to shout out directly uh, this product because, uh, quite frankly, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever dealt with. So the company is Rode, R-O-D-E. They're a company out of Australia. Uh, they're most well-known for their microphones, which I'm also talking to you on one right now. The device is called a Rodecaster Pro, and the Rodecaster Pro is basically a four-channel mixer that has a USB connection, a PC connection, and a Bluetooth connection, which I'm also currently using to use this uh, to uh, listen to you talk to me in my headphones. In addition, it has eight programmable touch pads, and those pads can be programmed to any sound any recording, anything that you want, sound effects, music. I could be recording this conversation right now onto one of those touchpads, you know, and, and play it later on. 
Um, within those eight touchpads are eight banks. So you have the capability to actually record up to 64 individual sounds, music, uh, recordings or whatever. And on the back of it is basically the most simple connectivity I've ever seen. Uh, it has a USB cord. It has a slot for my uh, mini SD card that I use to record on. It's got a couple of speaker outs. It's got some headphone outs and it's got four microphone uh, plugs. And then there's a microphone plug on the front. It's a little bit bigger than eight and a half by 11. <laughs> And that is literally what I use to record, produce, sound effects, music, volume, mix, mute, unmute, you know, whatever, whatever you think that you can think of in a, in a professional studio, condense that down to something that's basically the size of a good Stephen King book. And, and that's what you're that's what I'm using. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a, a centralized, uh, compact, multifunctional unit. That you're using there. What kind of microphones do you put on your actors? My whole studio is equipped with Rode NT1s. Uh, the reason for that is I kind of just like consistency and equipment, uh, especially because we're still old school and hardwired, if you will. And uh, these microphones are almost idiot proof, which is good for me because, you know, I'm an idiot. And, uh, and so um, we have now the interesting part about the Rodecaster and, and I push it to its limits. Uh, and I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, it has four microphone jacks, if you will, in the on the back. I actually split each one of those microphone jacks into two microphones. So I'm running eight microphones off of four microphone jacks. And uh, they're all Rode NT1s, uh, you know, complete with shock mounts and pop filters and swing arms and all that stuff. Uh, I'm moving this microphone right now. I don't think you're hearing it because I'm not hearing it. Yeah, no, I don't hear it at all. It doesn't pick up on any, you know, real external noise. Now they're very live. Um, so when we have, uh, you know, when we have a studio full of these and they're all uh, on, you know, they'll pick up uh, like I'll move a piece like you can probably hear me moving a piece of paper. You know, they pick up on that. So we have to be very mindful of how hot the room is uh, when these are all on. And then I run cordless headphones basically just to keep me from running additional wires everywhere. I have a uh, little transceiver that plugs in to the headphone jack of the Rodecaster. And from that, I also run 12 headsets. My whole studio kit is the Rodecaster, the headphone transceiver, laptop, a uh, decent sized monitor so I can follow the script along when we're doing the show. And then when we're going live, uh, I have a, uh, a little Comrex device uh, that will connect to the digital uh, signature for the radio stations. So it's uh, probably the most simplistic uh, setup uh, that you'll ever see. It's nice because we can pack the whole thing up in the back of a little you know, SUV and we can take it on the road anywhere we need to go. You know, even when we have studio audiences, uh, which we do when we go to nursing homes, uh, you know, I, it really doesn't matter to me that they can see all the wires and stuff because it kind of gives it that rough and ready appearance. Uh, you know, it's it's not a polished onstage production of anything. It's just a, a bunch of people sitting around talking into a microphone. Rod, how can people find Apples of Gold and listen to your productions? So right now, um, we predominantly will uh, release... Uh, all of our programs starting on Black Friday, uh, which is typically the Friday after Thanksgiving for those who don't shop. And uh, <laughs> uh, and we run those every uh, weekend and sometimes even through the week 
on uh, WCHS 580 AM in Charleston. And you can listen to those uh, through their website. And if we decide to kind of change up formats and, and maybe link up somewhere else, Kevin, I'll be glad to pass that information along to you and then you can distribute it however you'd like. Great. And we'll put as much information as we can in the show notes to this episode, how to find Apples of Gold and uh, those call letters to the stations and so forth. That'll be great if we can help you out there. So, Rod Pell, producer of Apples of Gold Radio Theater out of Huntington and Charleston, West Virginia. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Kevin. Have a great day. in tomorrow, same time, same station. Time marches on. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. Good night. Good night, all. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. It began earlier than eight, however, the case of the slaughtered Santas. It began to be precise on the corner of 34th Street and Carlisle. The hour was close to six, the weather cold, and the sky very dark. Hey, how you doing, Turner? Sure, uh, I'm freezing to death, officer. Well, it's a cold day. Are you packing up? Yeah, I guess so. Not many people around anymore. They're all heading for home and dinner. How was the collection? Well, I don't need no armored car, but a few dozen kids are going to have something for their Christmas stockings. Well, your competition, the guy on the opposite corner, is already scrammed. (laughs) Probably got low blood pressure. Well... Give me a hand to get the collection pot off the chains, huh? Sure. Here you go. Oh. 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 Uh, there. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I'll just walk you down the block. I got a phone in. Okay. That's fine. One Santa's still left. I wonder what he's waiting for. <laughs> Santa Claus? <laughs> well, watch yourself going down those chimneys tonight. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, I'll cut across the avenue here. Uh, Be seeing ya. Hey, Turner, that car coming down the street. Hey! It's got its lights out. Look out! Stop!